chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. All right. And I'd like to read this chapter. It's not a long chapter, about 18 verses. And I, I believe it'll put us in perspective of the day and age we live in. I mean, if you want to know where you're at, Second uh, Peter would be a good book to read. Uh, Jude would be a good book to read. And Second Timothy would be a good book to read. And it kind of places you, the setting is the last days. I truly believe we are living in these last days. I see an ever-growing coldness uh, in the church. I see an ever-present, more wicked world that we live in. It seems like it doubles in its wickedness overnight. And uh, just things that uh, uh, I never dreamed we would see or experience happening in our lifetime. And I really believe that this time, and the Bible says there in Daniel, that at the last time that knowledge would increase. And uh, it, it is our knowledge. The knowledge is increasing, but so is the wickedness. Now let's read here in verse 1 of chapter 3 and Second Peter. He says, This second epistle, beloved, uh, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Let me interject a thought there. What they're saying that the scoffers would be begin to declare in the last days is that God is not a part of his creation, that he's not actively involved in his creation. He might have set it in motion, but then he walked away from it in things and left things to evolve on their own. That's what they're saying. That's what's going on here. And we're living Living in such a time, uh, there, there are atheists around, and there are people that don't believe in God, people that believe in evolution, but you're finding an ever-growing uh, group of folks that believe, yes, there is a supreme being, a creator, but he is not actively involved in creation. And that's what the scoffers, that's what they're saying, a scoffer, someone who's going to make fun, who is disapproving, who is an antagonist. And he says, for this they're willingly ignorant. So this is not something that they're just in the dark on. They have willingly allowed themselves to be ignorant. That by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. What he's telling them is, remember Noah's flood? He says God is actively involved in his creation. And when sin reaches a certain level, God judges it. And so the thinking there on the scoffers is God doesn't judge sin. God is okay with the sin. After all, if God made you, he made you like that. And that is an ever-growing popular opinion. Like, well, God made me this way, so I'm just going to stay like this. I'm wicked. I live in sin, and I love my sin. God must love it because he made me that way and left me to it. And he's telling them, he's reminding them that God has destroyed this world one time with a flood. 
God will take it up with, uh, and he deals with sin. And he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It doesn't bring God pleasure when he has to judge sin. He wants all of mankind to, to repent and come to him. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. And this is the things he's telling us. Don't be ignorant of this, Christian child of God. He's addressing the church. He says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons? Now, I want to begin to introduce the concept and the idea behind the message because I'll be preaching out of verse 18, but he begins to introduce it in the word manner. Manner has to talk about ethics and your mannerism. And he says, uh, what manner, what, what manner, what kind of an ethics of a person's ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. Just because the world's wicked, just because the devil's wicked, doesn't give the child of God an excuse to be wicked. And he's talking about our mannerism in the last day, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. You want to know why God's tarrying so long? It's because he's long-suffering and he wants people to be saved. Let me just go ahead and introduce the thought that I had introduced in Sunday school class on why there's a great gulf and there will be a great gulf if in hell. Uh, when you read Isaiah 66, there was a great gulf between Abraham's bosom and hell. And when the rich man cried out for water, he says, Send Lazarus! to dip the tip of his finger and to put it on my tongue for I'm in torment. And Abraham says, I can't. There's a great gulf. Well, it looks like there could be a great gulf between the lake of fire. And by the way, the lake of fire will be ever visible uh, on, the, on that new heaven and new earth. God will keep it as a constant reminder. And you say, well, why is there a great gulf? And why is God so long-suffering? Let me tell you something. If you've got lost family, if you've got people that you know are lost, now is the time to begin to pray now is the time to approach them because when it's after death you're not going to be able to comfort them and there's a great gulf and there will be a great gulf and you will not be able to enter in because there'd be too many mamas that would want to take a glass of water to try to comfort a lost child that will be in the lake of fire till the end of eternity and God says it ain't going to happen right now today is the day of salvation God is long suffering God wants you God does 
not want you to perish. I don't know why people want to put themselves into hell, but it seems like they're just crawling in there. God doesn't want you there. The rich man didn't want you there. And I don't want you there. There's a great gulf there because there would be people... Because you know how parents are and mothers are, and I don't mean disrespect when I say that. They'll go to the ends of the earth and they would march right out of heaven with water to take to their lost kids in hell. And God says, you're not going to be able to do that. Time is short and I want God to come. I want him to come sooner rather than later. But God says he's long-suffering because of salvation. He wants, he's, he's just a little more time. Look, get them in. Try to get them in. And he says here, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such thing, be diligent, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, accounting that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, be aware, lest ye also being led, he's warning the church, Away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now, here's my text verse. And he says, but, that's a contrast, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray and ask God to bless the message. Our gracious Father, we come, we thank you now. Lord, we love you. Help us today. Lord, help us to see that time is short. Help us to have a burden for the lost. Help us to have a burden to see that our churches stand firm in its steadfastness. In these last days, to be a light, to be salt. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. The Bible says this about grace. I'm going to talk about growing in grace. Now, you should be familiar with that term. Uh, the Bible tells that for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And we have been taught that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And so about the only thing we know about grace is that God has grace, and I'm saved by grace. But here he declares and commands the Bible believer or the believer to grow in grace and knowledge. And what I'm finding today is people are growing in knowledge, but not in grace. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The word, this, this word grace here, it means to adorn. It means to embellish. It means to garnish or a state of elegance. He's just been telling us about the wicked world and how wicked it is and how sinful it is and how sensual it is. But the child of God is to have a holy conversation. He's to be that light. He is to be the standard. He is God's peculiar people. And he commands us to grow in elegance. 
in the Christian life. Now, elegance or grace is not pride. Okay, we're not talking about growing in pride and being proud of yourself. He's talking about grace. You've heard people say, well, they're very graceful. Uh, if, they, if they could walk or they keep a balance or you see them executing uh, something that uh, uh, you would find difficult yourself. Like on the, I am not graceful on the piano, but there are people that are very graceful on the piano when they play and they're very gifted. They have a lot of grace or they have a lot of elegance when they play. It's not that they're playing pridefully. It means they've got a lot of elegance in their execution my one of my mottos is if i mess up i bang on the keys harder and then if that don't work i hit the gas pedal on the right side and if that if i make a mistake and it's ringing out too loud then i let off the gas and hit the clutch which is on the left side and you'll see me you'll see me when i start struggling i begin to bang harder and the music gets louder and it's because i'm thinking and you see my mouth moving i don't have a lot of elegance or grace on the piano and it's okay what you see is what you get and it's all right and it'll have to do until god brings us a piano player but then he says we're commanded in scripture to be established in this grace he says there in Hebrews, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats. Now he's talking about that meats is another word for knowledge. In today's age, people are more concerned about the deeper doctrines of the Word of God, and we need to have doctrine. But we throwed the teaching of grace out and we're not established in the grace all we know about grace is we're saved by it and then we walk off and say oh, we're good to go give me more knowledge the bible also says that we're to be good stewards of god's grace and first peter chapter 4 he says as every man hath received the gift even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He said, what's he saying, preacher? He's saying when you get saved, every individual that gets saved, God gives them a spiritual gift to minister in a local New Testament church. And how dare that person has been given a gift by God to deny his gift to be used for God in the local assembly. And I know people that have taken the gift God has given them and they're using it for the world. Not right because the Bible tells us not to do that. We're to be good stewards. It's not being a good steward of God's grace. But then he says we need to minister grace. Now that word minister means to render aid to. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Each and every one of us have a duty to be a minister of grace. And the, and the very ways that we conduct ourselves and handle ourselves. A matter of fact, Brother, Brother Dennis and I were talking about a situation uh, where an individual really just didn't have no grace, did they? Brother, brother, they weren't graceful in how they approached a certain situation. I'm, I hate to say that, but sometimes church people don't approach situations very graceful either. 
We're to sing with grace. The singing that little Sister Brianna was doing, that was singing with grace. She was ministering grace, singing with grace. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. God has given her a little gift to sing for such a young age to be able to sing so well. And she has chosen, because she's in obedience to the Father, to share that to minister to our hearts. Does it, it blesses my heart to see the children sing. And, and by the way, I'm going to do a sidebar here. Please plan to be with us on May the 25th. I trust you. You have not been in a church service and seen a youth choir sing like Brother Barry Rackley's youth choir up there by Rogersville Baptist Temple. I will tell you, they will fill this place up and I kid you not, they will raise the roof off this place and you it'll be all you can do to sit there and keep from shouting or running. It's that good. I've seen them no less than three times now, and all three times it was everything I could do just to sit there and remain calm. I'm serious. It will bless you. That is my long-term vision. I want our youth to be involved in the workings of this church. That's why I want them taking the offerings. That's why I want them singing the specials. That's why I want them to take up a, uh, the penny march. I want them involved. They're in the sound booth. They're take up. Like I said, they're, they're going to work. And they're going to be involved, but just not in the things we don't want to do. I want them involved in everything. They've got to be trained to learn how to minister with grace. But we need to talk with grace. So here's a problem. The problem is, we've been warned by the Apostle Peter here in verse 3 that the scoffers would come. These are the insulters. They're the detractors. They're the persecutors. Those are the fault finders, the nitpickers. Oh, they're critical. There's one thing I've learned, and I deal with this on a weekly basis, not, not here. I have pastors and preachers that call me, uh, and, and they said, man, you know, I'm dealing with this, and, and this person wants everybody to overlook anything of them, but they have no tolerance for nobody else. You say, what is that? I take them right here. They're a scorner. They have no grace. They've not grown in grace. They have no grace for nobody, but they demand grace for themselves. These people have turned grace into lasciviousness. That's that uh, looseness. The Bible says this in Jude. That's why I said that'd be one of the books you would want to read if you want to know where you're at. Verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. We're seeing a widespread of that in our churches. There is an all-time looseness in our churches. Anything goes. And the bigger, badder, tougher rock concert that you can hold in your service, and the more provocatively and lustfully you can dress, the better everybody likes it. That is lasciviousness. That is evil. And God expressly forbids that the church or his people, when they come together, that they should ever practice in such a thing. But yet, that's the popular thing today. The churches that are growing right now are the ones that are putting on rock and roll concerts and little choreographies. You will not find that in the Word of God unless you go to Exodus 32 when it's with false worship. There's a reason we're singing out of the hymns. You say, but it's so boring. Then sing louder. It's so boring. Then raise your hands when you sing. It's so boring. Then say amen. 
He's so boring. Then say, preacher, sing another one. It ain't all about me. You want more singing? Let's sing that old song on there, uh, the power in the blood. Let's do it, preacher. We can do it. But that's how it's supposed to be done. We should not be like the world. In the last days, the Bible said uh, that it'd be like this. People would be growing in knowledge, uh, but not grace. And I come up with this phrase. You can grow in knowledge without growing in grace. But you cannot grow in grace without knowledge. And I'm finding that more and more. And let me tell you, when you got someone who's grown in a lot of knowledge but no grace, you know what they are? You know what the Bible calls them? A Pharisee. That's that nitpicker. That's that fault finder. That's somebody that'll strain a gnat for you, but in their own life swallow a whole camel. That's someone telling you that it, it'd be like me. Let me let's let's put it down to where the rubber's on the road. It'd be like me looking at you and telling you it's a sin to be fat. <laughs> yeah, and that'd be the response. Just the right response. Laugh. Like, yeah, right. That's well, that's where we're at. There's a lot of and of course we can build the knowledge. Well, it's bad to be fat. It's unhealthy to be fat. Yeah, amen. Keep preaching, preacher. But where's the grace? Now, so what is this growing in grace? Let me give a couple of illustrations. They'll be personal ones, but I believe they'll be fitting. If you're in the trades, anybody here a tradesman? Tradesman? Tradesman. Tradesman means you're a welder, you're a plaster, a plumber, uh, electrician, uh, maybe even a good mechanic. Uh, it's a trade. You've got to have a gift. <laughs> yeah. Okay. As a tradesman, I was a plaster, and I learned to be a plaster. And there's an old man I was thinking about this. His name is Ralph Hamilton. I don't know if he's still alive or not. But Ralph Hamilton was the kind of man that could come to work in a three-piece suit. I didn't say he could, he did. Because he was a pastor. And he could work all day long. He'd take the suit jacket off, put a white jumpsuit on because plasters wore white, work all day long, work just as hard as you, do just as much if not more than you, and at the end of the day, unzip that jumper, put on that suit jacket and go make hospital visits. He didn't have no materials on him, no mud on him. He didn't have nothing. There was nothing on his jumpsuit. I'd have wore that. And that's not me observing it. Everybody that ever worked around Brother Ralph Hamilton said that about that man. The man, he didn't hardly sweat. And he, I remember one morning we were working in Oxville, uh, Oxford in a college there. And, of course, I'm an apprentice. I'm in my second or third year. And, and, you know, apprentices, they don't have a lot of money. And my whites, you wore whites. You wore white pants and a white shirt. Well, I'm, I'm 19. I'm 18. I'm going to wear, I ain't washing them every night. What about Wednesday or Thursday? They got some material on them, some dirt on them. And if you were smart, you didn't wear them to work. You just... You, you, you changed into them at the work, and then you worked in them, and then you un changed out of them, and then you wore your regular street clothes. Ralph is looking at me one day, and he says, you know what? You'll never be a great plaster. I'm like, okay. I said, well, I, I have to ask why. 
<laughs> he says, because you have no elegance about yourself. And I says, what do you mean? He says, well, look at your whites. I said, yeah. He said, they're dirty. I said, well, yeah, we work. I'm an apprentice. I, got, I get all the bad jobs. I get stuff. People drop mud on me. It's all over me. He's like, nah. He says, look at your tools. Look at your trial. Look at your margin trial. He says, look at it. He says, it's been washed, but it's not clean. And he says, look at mine. He had his theirs, and they were spotless. They were oiled, and they were spotless. And, and, and he says, you'll be a good plaster, but you will not be a great plaster. And I can tell that just by you. He said, I, I don't mean that to be disrespectful or mean, but if you were planning on being a great plaster, it's probably not going to happen for you. You know what? He's right. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> he was right. He could see it. What will you say? What was he saying? He was saying, I did not have enough grace, enough excellence. You know, you find this uh, in cooking. <laughs> now everybody knows a little something about cooking. If you ever watched any of these chefs cook, they put a very high value on cleanliness and presentation, do they not? Not me. I often think, you know, I'd like to cook old Gordon Ramsay a steak. He can't stand to have steak juice in the plate. And tell him that's that's Todd's country special. Because I like taking a piece of biscuit and sopping that juice up when I'm done. I want it sloppy all over my plate. I want my mashed potatoes touching my green beans. I, I, I do. And you say, What's, what are you saying? I'm saying I'll never be a great cook because I lack elegance in the presentation. <laughs> That's funny, but you, you see what I'm saying. And they, 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 they put a lot of pride. They put a lot of poise in that. So I want to I give us some elements. What is the Bible talking about here? What is this but to grow in grace? Let me, let me give you a couple of elements. To grow in grace means you're going to have to have the right composure. Now that composure is defined as a settled state of mind. Let me tell you something. As a pastor, I've learned that there is nothing I can do for an individual in this church if they do not have a settled state of mind about whether they need, belong here or not, whether they're saved or not, whether they want to live the Christian life or not. And they will never grow in grace if they don't have composure. Composure, a, stead, a settled state of mind. And in verse 2, he says that we need to be mindful. He's talking about the mind. I'm bringing this to your remembrance so you have the right composure to grow in grace. You need to be settled that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're not settled on that, there's nothing nobody can do for you in the Christian life. You will not grow in grace unless you're settled that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
The right composure is settled that the Bible is God's perfect word and must be obeyed. If you're not settled on that, you will never grow in grace. Settled that God started the church. That it was important, or if it is important to God, it should be important to His children. If you're not settled on that, then you will never grow in grace because you lack composure. It is one of the necessary elements that you must have to grow in grace. You need to be settled on what God wants you or that God wants you in a local New Testament church. You need to be settled in the fact that God has given you a pastor to lead you and to perfect you in Christ and he's an instructor. In today's language, a head coach. I will use this illustration. Working with people and martial arts, they come to a dojo and there's, there's many different types of martial arts out there. And most people will come in as a skeptic. They, they're not settled on the art because most people are looking for what they call a golden art. They want to learn the art that defeats any art. They want to learn the art that is the ultimate, ultimate. And I got news for you. There is none. There is none. A martial art is nothing more than military way. It's a military way of handling conflict. Scientific. But I, I, I learned that you will never see the student advance. They can advance in knowledge, but they will not advance in grace. Let me give you an illustration, MMA. One of the problems with MMA is they have a lot of knowledge, but they do not have the discipline to handle the knowledge, the grace. That's why you, and I read about it again this week, there was another MMA fighter that has uh, went off the deep end, shot himself, shot his wife, shot a kid. And, and, and you, you hear that. You hear him getting involved in the fights. That is not taught in an actual martial art, the old way or an orthodox art. Because before you're given the knowledge, you will learn the grace, the elegance that comes with it. And that includes respect and honor and self-restraint. But that has been one of the underlying problems in your MMA sports, the mixed martial arts. They're great uh, practitioners. They're practically killers, but they have not learned how to handle that and get a grip on it because there's been, they've taken the grace part out. Let me get you the knowledge quickly. There's been no, uh, they've not earned it. It's just been given to them and then they practice it and they work out and you say, oh, I disagree with that. You, you can if you want, that's fine. But I am telling you, it's the truth. You can grow in knowledge, but not grow in grace. You're going to have to have composure if you want to grow in grace. But you're going to have to have comprehension. Now that word means a capacity of the mind to understand. He talked about that in verse 8. He talked about that in verse 16. And verse 17, he said, be not ignorant. He's talking about the Christian's comprehension. You will not grow in grace until you have comprehension. That means the ability of your mind 
to understand. That's why discipleship is important. That's why you need to surround yourself with better, stronger, smarter Christians than yourself. Let me give you an illustration. If you're trying to learn how to play the guitar, you don't go get with another novice to try to learn. You find an expert. Iron sharpeneth iron. You need to have a a comprehensive mind or the ability to understand that you, as a child of God, are in a war. This Christian life is a war. There is an enemy, and the world hates Jesus, and it hates you. And the devil, I need you to listen to this. The devil today, this morning, is actively working to get you out of church and the Christian life. You can have all the knowledge, but if you will not grow in grace, it'll do you no good. And you'll be a statistic. You're going to have to have comprehension. But you're going to have to have composition. That means the orderly placing of things in your life. This is what he means when he says, but grow in grace. He wants you to grow in composure. He wants you to grow in comprehension. He wants you to grow in composition. That's the orderly placing of things. Verse 3 and verse 17, he talks about the order of placing things. This is a method of reasoning from known truths. It has to be taught. There should be order in your life. What I'm talking about is priorities. This is how you bring composition to your Christian right. Right and wrong is not determined by how you feel, but it's based on truths from God's Word. If I've heard this once, I've heard it a hundred times. Whether I was trying to teach someone to plaster, trying to teach someone a martial arts technique. Well, that just doesn't work for me. I've also heard it in the Christian world. Well, preacher, the way you're saying it and the way you preach and when I apply it, it just don't work for me. Let me tell you what they told me. And they were right. If you find that the principle, which is a truth, that is always true, is not working for you, it's not the principle that's wrong, it's you're not working the principle right. Well, what we're doing... As we're trying to change the Bible to fit our beliefs instead of changing us to fit the Bible. We don't have composition. When you find the truth of God's Word in conflict with your life, it must be put back in order. God and the things of God should be the center of your life. It should be the hub. If you're too busy to put God first, you are out of order. You're lacking composition. And you will not grow in grace. God first. Family. Now, I'm had to modify this. Ministry's third. But family and ministry, you should strive to work them together. There should never be an excuse given, well, preacher, I can't come to church Sunday. I've got to spend family time. You told me. God first, family second, and then ministry. Right, preacher, it's what you said. Yeah, I did say that. We're all growing, ain't we? (laughs) You strive to put family and ministry together and spend that quality time. There's nothing better than spending family time, quality family time, serving God. I was taught that. 
I grew up, my father took us on visitation, took us to pass out tracts on the street and do street ministry, van routes. We spent family time serving God. You've got to have a composition, but here, the last of all, and I think this is the most important one. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And I'll try to hurry along. But I believe this to be very important. And we need this. Our churches need this. Our live stream audience needs this. We're not growing in grace. And we can't figure out what's wrong. we got too much knowledge. Our hearts are established in knowledge, but not with grace. And the Bible says, let your hearts be established in grace. And not with meat. Not everybody's at the spiritual level you're at. You know... In a dojo, you walk in, there's black belts, there's brown belts, there's yellow belts, there's white belts. I have some green belts too. You can't expect a white belt to be dressed and to look like the black belts. But God forbid if the white belts look better than the black belts. I've seen a few like that. Same way on the job site, plasters. You should be able to tell the difference between the seasoned journeymen, the intermediate men, and then the apprentices. <laughs> they, they should get better. I, I did get a little better, but I'm still not like Ralph Hamilton. I can't work all, there's no way I could plaster in a three-piece suit. I can't check the oil without getting it on me. Jenny can testify to that because she's got to wash my T-shirts. Pig pen? I don't know. It's just the way it is. I have no idea. It's just, it's, it's dirt is attracted to me. Say, what is that? Well, it doesn't mean I don't have the knowledge. <laughs> I just don't have the grace. I'm not elegant. My dad, he can work, work all day, and not get anything, hardly anything on him other than maybe on his hands. Crazy. My brother's that way. Jeremiah's that way. Jeremiah could work all day right with me on the same job, doing the same thing, handling the same tools. At the end of the day, he looks like he was ready to go to church, and I'm a mess. I always used to say it's because I'm working twice as hard as he is. But don't make a video of us working. <laughs> what is that? I don't know. But I see it in the Christian life, too. 1 Corinthians 13, charity. You'll have to have charity. It's one of the elements that make up growing in grace. Where to minister one to another. It means render aid to. Look with me here. Look what he begins to say about when a person has not grown in grace, but they've grown in knowledge. Verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Yeah, amen. There's a lot of good preachers I know of that know a lot in the Word of God. I mean, they're simply brilliant, but they're jerks. You say, what's wrong? They don't have no grace. They've grown in a lot of knowledge, but they have no grace. You know what they sound like? A tinkling cymbal is what they sound like. They're not effective for God. When we execute our composure, our comprehension, and our composition, it is to be done with charity. 
Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. You could have faith to move mountains. I know men like that. They can trust God, rely on God, and have that faith, but yet they have no charity. And you know what God just said? They're nothing. You want to know why? They have an ever-growing grace. You see, charity is long-suffering. It's not all about you, and it's not all about me. We need to be long-suffering to one another. Growing in grace is your long-suffering with others. You're kind. You envy not. You're, it's not vaunted. That, that means you're not full of pride. You vaunt not yourself. You're not puffed up. This Christian grace, it never fails. Look with me here. Verse 8, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fall, fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. You know what never fails? Charity. You know what never fails? Grace. You see, grace, when we get saved, God puts us into the sea of grace. It's an infinite ocean. And we're not just to waller in it, but he tells us, now that you're in my grace, grow in it. We're growing in knowledge, but not grace. That's where I come up with the principle. If you're ever in a situation where you can hold to the letter of the law, you could be viewed mean, but you're legally can hold there or to show compassion. Always show the compassion, the charity. And I'll tell you why. It'll never backfire on you. It'll never fail you. And that's what your Bible says. It's more important that we learn to grow in grace. That's why he put it in the first order. But grow in grace and then knowledge. And when churches and church people have a lot of knowledge, but they have no love for one another, and their schism and their vision in the body, it's because they have not equally grown in grace. And I see it a serious thing that is lacking in today's churches. We've turned our churches into Hollywood, into social clubs. Church and church people was to be about grace. We should show God's excellence in us. I don't mean prideful. I mean, when we're executing God's principles, we should do them with excellence and poise. We should not be MMA Christians. I almost titled the message that. MMA Christians. We need to grow in grace. Growing in grace doesn't mean you're not bold. doesn't mean you don't stand against evil and sin. But it means you do so with excellence. You know, there's two ways to always preach a message. You can preach a message with hate in your heart to try to hurt people and run people off. And you can take that same message and preach it with an attitude of love and restoration, wanting to people to see the light of God's Word so they can grow and be edified. And that's called grace. 
I've seen both kinds. And I hate to confess to you, I've done both kinds. You say, what is that, preacher? That's somebody that's out of balance. There's no symmetry in their life. And they have more knowledge than they have grace. Grow in grace. And to do that, you'll have to have these four elements. Composure, comprehension, composition, and charity. That's what he's talking about when he tells you, grow in grace. Let's all stand this morning.